Okay, the scripture for today is in the book of John. John 15, verses 1 through 8. Before I read it, though, let's pray for God's illumination on the scripture. Let us pray. Almighty and glorious God, who calls us into your house today to study your word, Lord, we are grateful. God, I just ask that you would illumine the scripture so that we might be enriched and that we might see your message through your word, Lord. And humbly, I ask that my message would be your message and that you would be glorified. In your son Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So John 15, 1 through 8. Again, a very familiar passage. We've been in very familiar stuff lately. Hey, you might even be able to see my notes today. Uh, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So friends, last night I uh, sourced (laughs) this vine. We won't say it came from an inconspicuous uh, bigger tree that had a small offshoot. But last night this was, these leaves were quite vibrant. But today not so much. It's been cut off from the source. It's no longer a part of the tree where it gets its nutrients. So I wondered this morning if together we could make this branch bear fruit now that it's been cut off. Suppose if we want to be ridiculous, we could maybe take some fruit to it, you know, and it might bear fruit that way, but probably try as hard as we might. And all that we might do with good intentions, we're probably not going to get this branch to bear any fruit. And so it is in our lives when we're cut off from the vine. We cannot bear fruit. So that's sort of the message we have this morning in this well-known scripture. But let me give you some good news. Let's just start off with some good news. We can bear fruit when we abide in Jesus, and Jesus abides in us. If you notice in the scripture that I just read, it's a guarantee. If Jesus abides in us and we abide in Jesus, we will bear good fruit. Not an idea, not a fluffy pie in the sky notion. This is a guarantee that we see in the Bible. It's a sure thing. Now, friends, we can toil away with everything that we got. We can even work together with all that we have. But unless we're fully connected to the vine, we're going to toil in vain if we're not working together and toiling with Christ, abiding in us and us in Christ. We must trust and abide in Christ. And friends, we will not produce good fruit if we don't. We'll be spinning our wheels, as we say, proverbially. Well, we don't need the branch any longer, so I put it up. But moving on. This passage contains strong language. We see if you're cut off from the vine, 
not much value in that. It gets tossed away as if it were kindling and into the fire. But there's also some strong language about being part of a community. There's some communal languages. And there's always challenges when we talk about being in community. Why? Because we're individuals. We're wired to be individuals. So we have, but the Christian faith is communal and relational by its very nature. We are part of the church, of course. But this is not what this parable is getting at. That's not what Jesus is trying to say. His language and description suggests a living and growing faith community. That's what we are to be. Now, each branch should play its own part in that community. And we have to do our part as we contribute to the whole. But the good fruit that's produced is for the whole, not simply for us as the individual branches. Now, let's not get misunderstood, though. We do receive goodness in this life. We get our own slice of God's providence that God gives us in this life. And we know that that is unending, the goodness of God. But this passage reminds us of who we are in the larger picture, in the bigger scheme of things. That's what we see in this passage. And this is a passage framed by Jesus' command of a self-giving love. And friends, because we have received God's providence and God's love and God's goodness, we've received our share We are called to witness. And our witness needs to be rooted in two things, in both confession and in action. As we confess the word of Christ to folks out and about and and through our actions. And our witnesses, and what we're called to do, is we're called to bear much fruit. As we become disciples, or continue, I should say, our journey as disciples with Christ. And in all this, God is glorified when we witness to folks through actions and our words. Now, you might say, well, Ron, what kind of good fruit are we supposed to bear? How do we do this? How do we bear this fruit? I'd say that's a real good question. I have on the screen uh, some things, but first thing I have is a life of good works. Well, here's the thing I need to tell you about good works. John Wesley believed that good works are not good works until you have salvation. They were just things you did until you knew Christ. But then they were good once You had Christ in your life. And his feeling was, is you can't do enough good things to go to heaven. You're saved by your faith. But he also didn't have this notion of cheap grace. Because you're saved, because Christ abides in you, and you're supposed to be abiding in Christ, then you would naturally do good works because that's what the love of Christ does. So very Methodist, okay? We can't do enough to get to heaven. We always need to check ourselves and know where we're at. Are we fully abiding in Christ? Do we need to repent? Is Christ our everything? But we do good things because we are spirit-led as a result of our faith. So that's one thing. And then caring for the poor, right? All over the Bible. Caring for the poor, the sick, the widow, the orphan, the elderly. All wonderful things to do. All scriptural things to do. And of course, witnessing to anyone we can out in society also. A thing to do, witnessing by its very nature would be that thing. So it's again, action in its words, proclaiming the reign of God on earth. But it's a good question. And I would just tell you, as it came up in prayer time, let the Spirit lead you and go where the Spirit leads you and do the things that the Spirit's telling you to do. But let me make it a little easier. The Scripture does give us a starting point. Simply abide in Jesus. As Jesus abides in us, that is the starting point. And abiding actually speaks to the spiritual aspect 
of Jesus' relationship to his disciples. But as I always say, when we read disciples, it's us too. These words were written for us as modern day disciples, as we make disciples for Christ. But he's talking about them being with each other. And that, in that time in the scripture, Jesus is with them. He's among them. But the emphasis here is not on some kind of mystical dwelling as in the state of the scripture, but it's actually more about the bearing of fruit. He's telling them, hey, you have to bear fruit. And you're going to do that by keeping the commands that Christ gave. And it says here, and I hear this, probably my favorite point of the whole thing. The Christian life begins in love. In verse 9, we see, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you previously. And all this is carried out in love. When we love each other, but he says, love one another as I have loved you. And I also like this, the passage directs us from love to love. It's a double portion of love, and love is the connection. And this is a frequent theme of John's gospel. But this command, the love command, it's undeniably, it's unquestionably at the core and result of Christ's teaching. Now, here's another point. Because of Christ's teaching, the church can no longer be inward looking. We can't be inward turned, and we can't be a self-contained entity. The greatest commandment, as Jesus phrased it, you know it, you love it. Love God and love your neighbor. Again, love. So that means we have to be outward looking as we witness, as it says here in the scripture. And the two cannot, loving God and loving neighbor can't exist but together. They come together. Now, it's been a while, so let's go back to my roots. But this has happened in your jobs too, I'm sure. You ever been training someone or somebody's training you and you get to that part where they say, listen, that other stuff is important, but this is non-negotiable. <laughs> you do this or you don't have a job. And so this, this, what we're seeing, this bearing fruit, it is a non-negotiable. It is what it is. And we have to bear fruit. And so we just, you can't. You can't separate it from that. So what happens if we don't bear fruit? What happens if the branch fails to show love to all by responding positively to God's pruning and God's providential care? Well, as you saw with the branch I showed you, it withers. And it really doesn't have any value. It becomes useless. It's reduced for kindling for the fire. That's the bad news. But the good news is that the branches, those that remain in Christ, those that abide in Christ, will bear much good fruit. And that's a wonderful thing. We as disciples, if we abide in Christ, then we will bear much good fruit. And Jesus, again, greatest teacher ever. I put it's pretty smart in my notes, but the greatest teacher ever. Again, he's teaching lessons here through metaphor and through parable. This is ultimately a passage about the Christian life. And how we must abide in Christ and show the love of Christ to others. Of course, we see metaphors. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a wine person, but I'm told the best grapes in a vineyard are the ones that live closest to the central vine. Those are the ones you want because they receive the most nutrients. And likewise, grapevines aren't allowed to spread out all willy-nilly everywhere. They've got to be pruned back so they produce the greatest amount of fruit. So the lateral branches are pruned and they're cut. 
So I'm not a gardener either. Maybe perhaps after seminary I'll have time for it. But I read this week, and maybe you guys know this, um, when the first flowers come up, I read something called deadheading, which is taking and popping the, the block. Now, that's not me, but you guys are shaking your head, so I'm assuming this is a thing, right? Well, me, I just walk around and say, that's a pretty flower, right? I can't imagine, like, if you're a gardener, that you have to do this for the greater of the, of the rest of the flowers. Because the result is fuller plants. That's pruning. More blossoms down the road. And I'm told that would be a hard thing to do, and I can imagine that. Because those first flowers, we wait so long for them to come up. Anyway, the pruning, though, is important in that case. So this is all well and good. So you might say, well, Ron, what does it mean then? How do we abide in Jesus? You've heard me say it before. I encourage you to read the message version as often as you can. Read, read something out of your typical, but then go to uh, Bible Gateway or something and look at the message translation. Eugene Patterson says, he uses the word, he doesn't use abide. He says, live in me. Make your home in me just as I do in you. The notion of making a home, of finding the heart's true home in Jesus, it brings a settled peace to our life. It brings peace to the turmoil that often characterizes our lives. When someone's having a difficult time, I'm guilty of it too, right? Don't we casually say to that person, hang in there. Not very helpful, right? But, but sometimes all we can muster, not helpful. For one who's really wondering how to do just that, how to hang in there. That's what they're trying to figure out. They're trying to grapple with the situation. Jesus offers friends so much more to us than just hanging in there. Hard times will come. We see that every week as we get together. But living, abiding, and finding our home in Jesus, the true vine, and God as the grower and sustainer of us, promotes even greater well-being if we'll just do that. And friends, bearing fruit when it counts, that grows from our union with Jesus. Finding that home in Jesus and letting the word sink in. Finding a home in us, the, the words of the Bible, if we'll let it find that home. Through faithful devotion, we must have faithful devotion. Which should bring about great joy in our lives as we're walking closer, as we're abiding more with Christ. And as in nature, the pruning and the abiding are held together. And we remain close to Jesus we're attuned to him and he to us, the remarkable result, the only thing that can happen is what God wants is what we also want. We're in lockstep when we abide in Christ and it will surely come to pass. And as we're being pruned, all that extra stuff we don't need, it's being lovingly but sometimes painfully cut out as the master gardener is pruning us. And all that's left, if we allow it to be, is the good stuff that's focused in God's word. And so we see here a holy conversation between Jesus and the disciples. And he says very plainly, basically, don't try to do this alone. It won't end well. You'll be cut off from your source of nourishment. Friends, we shouldn't go it alone either. We are chosen to bear the fruit of heaven. And Jesus is the one that made that possible. And Jesus is the real hope for all of us, they're trying to hang in there in this life. We're trying to hang on to the vine of life. Now, as I begin to close, I don't need the notes for this. I didn't actually intend those to be on the screen the whole time, but that's okay. You got a bonus. Part of uh, evangelism class this year has been 
engaging in what we call holy conversation with my friends. And I've met some new friends. This week, the article we were assigned was rather lengthy, but it was all about prayer. And as we sat and talked, one of my friends said, well, how do you feel, how are we doing with prayer? And first it was directed towards me personally, and then, you know, in the life of the churches. And so we answered that, and I said, well, I think we could always do better. And then one of my friends said, well, isn't it funny that we really don't spend that much time learning about how to pray? We're learning all this other stuff, but we're banking the whole future of our lives on our connection to God through prayer. And I said, that's it. That was the message of it. And we read this story uh, about a church that the leadership decided they weren't going to do anything but pray for three months. Now, I'm telling you, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything for three months. It didn't involve doing something. But I read this story, and it grew exponentially because it unbound their thoughts and brought in the Spirit's thoughts, and they moved forward with prayer. And it was fascinating. And so, lesson learned. So I say this to say that whatever your prayer life is today, work on it. Work on it. Maybe get some resources for it. But definitely find time and be in tune and listen. That's how we abide in Christ is through our prayer life and our devotion and the the work we do together, of course, when we come together. So that was just something that came of that conversation. And I do, I've really loved that class as we talk through this together. So friends, as I do truly close, it's easy to, so many days I want to stand up here and only tell you the good stuff. Right? It's so much easier than, than giving commands and things. This scripture is pretty clear. You abide in Christ, you get good stuff. Those that do not, and those that cast Christ aside, are also not going to bear good fruit. And so I have to balance that message this morning. It's kind of like we just need to do the things that are said here with everything that we have. And always be checking and listening to the Spirit and repenting. And that's what it means to abide in Christ. Every day we try to trust more and walk closer. And we're going to mess up. (laughs) That's that grace thing we always talk about in forgiveness. We get back to good. I think God Ran was a good song this morning. Because when we go away, God is still running to us. If we'll call out to God. So friends, pray hard, pray earnestly, pray often, and don't get disconnected from the life source who desires good for you every day of your life. God bless you all. Amen. Friends, I call this sermon, The Hour Has Come. Now every week we say the Lord's Prayer. It's a tradition, it's something I've known ever since I've sat in these seats, it's a Something I have continued on after the pastoral prayer. Um, It's just something that we do. But have you ever wondered why they call it the Lord's Prayer? As I was reading and studying this week, multiple commentators pointed this out. And they said, after all, Jesus didn't have a need to say the Lord's Prayer because Jesus didn't have any trespasses to forgive. He was sinless. So perhaps it's called the Lord's Prayer, which is why it's called the Lord's Prayer. It's because Jesus taught us how to pray to the Lord. In prayer. Now, I don't have any problem calling it the Lord's Prayer, but I bring it up today because the scripture for today contains a prayer that actually many scholars and commentators 
called the true Lord's Prayer. This is Jesus praying to God before the end of his ministry, before he would die on the cross. And because we know that Jesus had an excellent prayer life. We see that in the scriptures, but usually it's a short prayer that you see. But this scripture is a rather long prayer, and that wasn't all of it that I read. But typically we see the short prayers such as, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's in Luke 23. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In Matthew 27, 46, and then in Mark 15, 34. Father, into my hands, into thy hands, I commit my spirit, Luke 23 and 46. So those are sort of the short prayers. But here we see a long prayer that many have called the holiest of holies. Now that's quite a description. This is holy ground in this prayer. You're seeing in length Jesus going to the Father in prayer for the disciples as he's leaving the world. It's sort of his farewell speech. This prayer is something that some scholars spend years on. I was driving back yesterday from helping Krishna uh, move some stuff. I listened to a 45-minute talk on just one verse of this prayer. And I'm not going to do that to you this morning, but this is, this is the holiest of holies. We have God incarnate praying to the Father at length. And it's groundbreaking, this prayer. Jesus' role changes a little bit as this prayer unfolds, and we'll get to that here a little later in the sermon. But you also see a shift in timetable. Prior to this time with the disciples, when, when Jesus was asked you know, to reveal things, he would say, my hour has not come, the time has not yet come. But here, friends, the hour had finally come. And on this last Sunday of Easter tide, this is a very appropriate place uh, to be in the Word as Jesus gives his farewell speech. And some scholars, again, say this is the most sacred uh, of scriptures. And I'm all about complex narratives of, of the Bible. That's what I've spent three years uh, reading and deciphering. Uh, so this morning, I don't mean to be dismissive. I don't mean to be too playful with these words, but I'm going to take a little creative license. As I read this prayer over and over again and listened to it in my car, I thought to me it kind of sounded like a graduation speech to the disciples. And maybe graduation's uh, just on my mind, but as Jesus was getting ready to send them out into the world, um, this felt a little bit like a baccalaureate speech where he's trying to impart the wisdom. So anyway, I hope you'll indulge me for a little bit. What incredible education the disciples had received. And we know that, but as we, as we dive into this prayer I think about, well, I might have been off trying to master divinity, whatever that should mean. I don't think you ever master divinity by reading all these books and articles and essays. But the disciples learned, and you see in this, in this prayer, they got their knowledge from the source. They belonged to God. They were given to Jesus, and they are one with each other, God and Jesus. And that's where they got their knowledge. They were chosen by God. So let's look at verse 6 again. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. Talk about a prestigious school that they belong to. And I would say that we all belong to because we are modern day disciples. And they received the knowledge, like I said, from the source. As it says in verse 8, we'll revisit that. For the words you gave me, God, I have given to them. And that word is given to us. And they have received them and they know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. It's a powerful statement, friends. Can you imagine being one of those disciples and hearing Jesus pray 
to God in that holy moment on that holy ground as he spoke to the Father, as he spoke of the disciples being chosen by none other than God himself, Jesus incarnate. This is unity, friends, unity at its best. God the Father in union with Jesus the Son in communion and prayer. Now what Jesus says next is life-changing for us. This is where the role sort of shifts for Jesus. Where he says, I'm not ask, I am asking rather on their behalf. I'm not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those you gave to me because they are yours. Now Jesus is interceding and he's praying on behalf of the disciples. This is an intercessory prayer. And you might notice every week as I pray in the pastoral prayer, when I bring up our petitions, I say, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. That is an intercessory prayer. But that style began with Jesus and it begins here. And it's on full display in the scripture. The hour had come and Jesus knew that he would be killed. He would be resurrected. He would ascend to the Father. And this established his role as the intercessor for us for all of our days. This is also called a high priestly prayer as Jesus is playing the role of the high priest. Jesus is the only person that can go directly, can approach God directly as he intercedes for his people. He's the only person. And so this is the reason why when we pray, we should say, in your son Jesus' name. Because Jesus intercedes and hears those prayers as he sits at the right hand of the Father and communicates So the message this morning is that Jesus intercedes in our lives for us in every day of our lives until Jesus comes back again. He is the intercessor. He hears our prayers and he loves us. So friends, it's worth this morning, I think, to remind ourselves this prayer is Jesus praying for the disciples, but we are disciples. I've been trained to to say that every time you see disciples, you just kind of insert yourself in there. And it is God that provided the grace that led us to Jesus. We were chosen by God and given to Jesus. And it was God that turned the shame of the cross through Jesus into glory as our sins were forgiven, as we have a path to heaven. Now we sitting here this morning, we know that God sent us to Jesus and we believe that and thank God for that. But I want you to really know that. This prayer was for us too. Now let's get back to verse 8. I'm sorry, look at verse 11. Another powerful shift occurs. Jesus hadn't been crucified yet, but he shifts the time. He says he's no longer in the world. In that moment, he's already made the transition. He's not of the world anymore. He's let them know clearly he's not of the world. He'll go back to heaven where all of this started. When he was with the Father when the earth was created. He could have just left. He didn't have to pray in this way. He could have just left. But he prays instead for the disciples' protection. Because they are still in the world. And he knows that they've been treated badly and they'll continue to be treated badly. Because they loved and they followed Jesus. So then Jesus prays, Holy Father, protect them in your name. That you have given me. So there's oneness. So that they may be one as we are one. And you see unity again in that phrase. Jesus continues. While he was with them, he says to God that he protected them in God's name for God's glory. And now Jesus prays to God to the Father while he's still in the world. 
So for a second, he says, I'm, well, I'm still here, but I'm not going to be so that the disciples may receive joy. So again, in that moment, Jesus is interceding for the disciples. He's asking for joy to manifest in the disciples. And that continues for us today, friends, as Jesus continues to intervene for us and wishes joy for our lives. Then another shift occurs. In verse 15, we read that Jesus is not asking God to take them out of the world, but he's asking for protection from the evil one, which is the way the modern translations say the devil, that's the evil one. And Jesus says multiple times, if you notice, he looked at the scripture multiple times, he says, they do not belong to the world. They're set apart from the world. And he prays that they'll be sanctified in God's truth. But then the next thing he says, we see in multiple places in the scripture, but he prays for their protection. He prays for protection from evil. And then he says, but they must be sent out into the world. They can't remain where it's safe. They must be sent out. Just as Jesus was sent by the father, the disciples are sent out in that moment. Now, this does sound to me in that moment like a graduation speaker. We've all heard one, whether it's at our own graduation or somebody else's. We're told to go out into the world and there's all these possibilities. And then they tell us a little bit about all the dangers that could be there. I remember those speeches well. I don't think they told me quite of all the dangers in high school. There's some things that beat me up pretty good. But we had to go out there. The only difference was... We didn't have Jesus, not like the disciples did. Hopefully we were Christians there. But as we go out into this world, we have the Holy Spirit that is left with us. But we do have to go out into the world as Jesus can intercede for us with guidance and protection that incorporates the whole Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are left with the Holy Spirit and that unites us and that gives us strength as we go out into the world. But as we do go out into the world, Make no mistake about it. We're not to act like the people who would be normalized in the world. We're set apart, just as the disciples are set apart. And so, friends, there's a lot here in the Scripture. And I'll spare you the 45 minutes per verse. So as I sort of begin to close, as I begin my closing process, there's a few takeaways I want you to, to take away from this. The first is, just as the disciples were known by God and sent to Jesus, we are sent to Jesus who intercedes for us as he has God's ear and our best interest at heart always. Number two, we are not of this world, but we belong to God. We are sent apart and our lives should not look worldly in that sense. But at the same time, we can't hide from the world. We have to be in it, but set apart from it at the same time. And that's the third point. We are sent out into the world. We're not shielded from that obligation. We must go out into the world. And there's a whole other sermon in those words. But I will say a little bit here. As I begin to think about and process this time in seminary, clearly some of my most powerful learning came through my missions courses and my evangelism courses. And mission is typically thought about I read some words from a scholar that said, usually a church says that mission is anything that they spend money on. Anything that goes to the line item where we're trying to reach people and get them to come in church. And that's a national phenomenon, but that is not really what mission is. And so you should think of mission as the mission of God. The missio dei is what it is in the translation. It's the mission of God, and it's telling the good news for God's purposes, not for our own and for God's glory. 
as telling the good news to everyone that needs to hear it. Not because we're trying to do anything else, but spread the gospel. It's the mission of God. Now, evangelism, most people, I think, that carries an icky connotation to it. Evangelism. What is evangelism? Well, it's really just mission. It's the way you carry out mission. How do you communicate the Missio Dei, the mission of God, out to the world? That is evangelism. And it's more than just the words we speak. That's a mistake that I had. I thought, well, in order to evangelize, you have to speak. Well, no, that's not true. If you're set apart from the world and you live with the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and your actions flow that way, that is evangelism because folks see the light of God in you. And they want, they want to live a life like that. So evangelism is not just verbal proclamation. And so it does tie in to the scripture. We are to be set apart from the world. But some of the statements that I heard in seminary really rocked me to the core. The statement was, there is no church without mission. The very function of the church is mission. Yes, we gather for fellowship. And that's, that is perfectly right and acceptable. We should gather. But a church by nature is for mission. It's to spread the word of God to the community. And evangelism is that mechanism. So, you learn that evangelism and mission aren't programs of the church. It's the very nature of the church as we spread the word of God. They're the reason that the church exists. Now this passage again, multiple times, says we're set apart. So the question is, I do really begin to close. The question we should be asking ourselves is, how are we set apart? How are our actions in the world showing others that we're set apart as disciples of Christ? How are we living that shines the light of Christ through our actions. So friends, let us endeavor to shine the light. And that light is always rooted in love and radical hospitality for all people. We have all received the knowledge spoken in this scripture. Let us take it in and let us boldly go live it as we walk with the world's greatest teacher who intercedes on our behalf all the days of our lives. And I will finally close with the message of Eugene Patterson in the message translation. So I just encourage you, if you don't read the message translation, I would read the standard transition, which, translation, whichever one you want, and then look at the message. It's always written so beautifully. But here is how Eugene Patterson says some of the things in the scripture. It says, my life is on display in them. How we live and love in this world is the presentation of Christ to those who do not know him yet. How we share and give does not just reflect on us, but it reflects on Jesus. How we treat one another, how we honor one another, how we celebrate one another and the commitments we have made are parts of our faith. And Christ is glorified by the way we live in community. May it be so, friends. God bless you. Amen. I am going to go ahead at this point. If you would please stand. Mike, we've been doing the doxology a cappella. I've kind of liked it. (laughs) I'll lead us in the doxology. Praise God from
gracious, almighty God, we're thankful to once again serve you with our tithes and our offerings. Lord, I ask that you bless this offering to your community, to the kingdom. Lord, I ask that you bless the gifts and bless the givers. In your son Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for the benediction. As you go forth this week, know that you were chosen by God. And all that's been revealed in that prayer is Jesus intercedes for the disciples. He intercedes for us. Turn your eyes upon Jesus at every opportunity. Walk in confidence with the love of God that dwells in you and show it to others. Go in peace, friends. God bless you. Have a great week. Amen. Thank you.